What are some of the activities that are going to be happening this weekend because it's Easter? I'm sure you can think of many, can't you? Eating Easter eggs, surely that's the, that's the one that's going to be happening most, isn't it? You've eaten your Easter eggs already. More people going to church. More people do go to church because it's Easter. Special services, just like we had on Good Friday. The Pope and the Archbishop of Canterbury give an address to their churches. Easter egg hunts. Uh, All sorts of activities for children involving Easter bunnies. All sorts of activities. But if we strip it back to the bare essentials, if we strip back all the extras that have been added over the years, what are we left with? What's at the core of Easter? Well, it's described by, the, by part of the Bible called 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 14. If you'd like to turn to it, it's uh, in the English Bibles, page 1240, and in the Chinese Bibles, it's the second part, page 361, and it's also up on the screen. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 14. We believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. I want to use just this verse to tell you what's at the heart of Easter. What's it all about? It starts with something, a very simple statement. It's all about this. Jesus died and rose again. Now have a think of some famous people. Who would be on your list of the most famous people? Who do you put in the top ten? Queen Elizabeth II? William Shakespeare? Confucius? Hitler? Mao Zedong? Marilyn Monroe? Mohammed? I'm not sure if I'm up to 10 yet, but pretty famous, aren't they? Who's in your top 10? There is one who stands head and shoulders above them all. He is by far the most famous. It is, of course, Jesus of Nazareth. He lived 2,000 years ago. Up to the age of 30, he was just a carpenter, doing an ordinary, unknown job, unknown to others. And then for three years, he became famous, going around teaching and healing people. Until one night at 33 years old, he was arrested, put through a corrupt and unjust trial, sentenced to death, flogged across his back, nailed to a cross, left there for hours to die. And when he died, soldiers came and put a spear in his side and out flowed blood and water that proved to them, oh yes, he really is dead. And two of his admirers came, took down his body, buried him in a tomb, cut out of a rock. Three days later, his tomb was empty. And he was seen by many people, not just patched up and just about alive, but full of life, brimming with new life, powerfully, vigorously, supernaturally, more full of life than anyone has ever been. The Bible says, we believe Jesus died and rose again. It's a massive claim. It's a hard-to-believe claim. Is there good reason to believe it? Well, let's consider that now. Let's not just make presumptions. Let's consider it now. 
The Bible clearly claims that Jesus died. It clearly states that he rose again. It clearly claims that eyewitnesses saw him. People still alive when the Bible was written had seen him. Alive after, the, after death. And it claims that many believed it. That over the next few weeks and months and years, many thousands believed this message. So, whether there is good reason to believe that Jesus died and rose again, all comes down to this. Are these writings in the Bible reliable? Is what we now call the New Testament reliable? If it is, well, he he rose again. If it isn't, well, we can forget it all. It all boils down to that. Are these writings reliable? I want to spend some time on that now, and I want to go through some reasons to believe that we'll put on the screen, and we're doing that because I want you to be able to follow this clearly, because I want to persuade you. You should believe that Jesus died and rose again. Why should you? Well, because there is, firstly, evidence the New Testament was written soon after the time of Jesus. And this really matters. Think of it this way. Have you ever lost a shopping list that that you'd written? Or you lost a bank statement? Or some other piece of paper? And you know it's somewhere in your house, but you just can't lay your hand on it. I expect we've all had that. But that's just in your house. A piece of paper in your house that you can't find. Imagine how hard it is for archaeologists hunting around the Mediterranean area to find old copies of parts of the New Testament. Now, if you can't find a bank statement in your house, what hope have they got of finding a piece of paper with an ancient copy of part of the New Testament written on it? And yet many have been found, including parts going back to the early 100s AD. Now you might say, the early 100s AD, that's not when Jesus was alive. No, but you've got to think how these things work. If it's unlikely for you to lay your hands on that shopping list in your house, think how unlikely it is for a copy of part of the New Testament to survive 2,000 years. And then if it's going to survive, think how even more unlikely for someone to find it somewhere around the Mediterranean. Now for that to happen, many, many, many copies need to have been made and to have been spread to many, many people. And in an age before the printing press, that takes decades for a book to be rewritten and rewritten and rewritten and passed around enough people that there's any chance that 2,000 years later anyone's going to find part of it. And yet they have. Many, many, many parts of it have been found. Showing it, it must have been written decades before those particular documents. In fact, it's reckoned the part of the Bible we're reading today, 1 Thessalonians 4 verse 14, was written in AD 50. That's only about 20 years after Jesus was around. So parts of the New Testament have been, written, have been found that were written very early on. Also, by the early 100s AD, you find the New Testament being quoted by other writers. Now, if it's being quoted by other writers, it tells you it had been around for many, many years before that. Long enough, in an age without printing, to be copied and passed around and become familiar to many people. So it's worth 
other writers quoting it. So we can say very soon after the time of Jesus, there were writings being spread around claiming Jesus died and rose again and claiming there were many eyewitnesses still alive who can tell you this is true and claiming that thousands of people were believing this message. Now, if you're going to make those claims and put them in writing and spread them around, well, it's either going to be true or it will be very easily proved wrong and soon die out. So we come to the second thing to consider. There's evidence the New Testament was written soon after the time of Jesus, but also evidence these claims were believed soon after the time of Jesus. So again, in the early 100s AD, you find Roman and Greek writers writing about the activities of Christians, sometimes mocking them, often misunderstanding them, but writing about this, these people called Christians. The Christians had become a big enough group of people, spread widely enough around the Roman Empire to be noticed by famous writers who had no sympathy with Christianity. Now that doesn't happen in a few years. A belief doesn't grow and spread like that in a few years. The only explanation is the Bible's one. Christianity was growing from the time of Jesus onwards, spread by people convinced Jesus died and rose again, and convinced enough to be willing to die for it. Here are evidences that what we've got written in front of us is reliable. But there are also evidences inside the Bible. So thirdly, evidence inside the New Testament that it was reliably written when it claims. Oh, there's so many here, I'm just going to give you three. Here's one, specific details. Now, parents, I hope this never happens to you, but it probably does. When your child has been up to no good and is being questioned, where were you? What were you doing? What does a a child with a decent brain do? Keeps it vague, don't they? I mean a naughty, dishonest child. Keeps it vague. Because it's easy to be caught out, isn't it? If you give specific details. But the thing with the Bible is it doesn't keep it vague. It gives very specific details. Like it says, Jesus, was, Jesus healed a man at a pool in Bethesda surrounded by five covered walkways. That's very specific, isn't it? And surprise, surprise, it's exactly what archaeologists have dug up. A pool in at Bethesda surrounded by five covered walkways. The New Testament is full of details of places and names and what the culture of a certain town was like that are very specific to those times and places. It even has how people used and spelt and pronounced an an unusual word, Hosanna. Jesus went into Jerusalem and the people said Hosanna. Do you know it was used and spelt and pronounced differently at that time than from other times? And surprise, surprise, the Bible matches how it was used, spelt and pronounced then. Specific details that you just wouldn't get if you were making it up a hundred years later. It has incidental details. Now, if you watch crime programmes, why do criminals, what do the criminals do when the police are questioning them? What do they say? There's two words they always say, don't they? No comment. 
No comment. No comment. And you think, why do you say that? It makes it obvious you're guilty. Well, they say it because if they start to say things, they know it's so easy in the little things you weren't even thinking about, the things you weren't, thought weren't important, the incidental details, it's so easy to be caught out, to be shown up. They don't match. And yet the Bible is full of incidental details. I'll give you one example. In John's Gospel, Jesus is about to feed 5,000. It tells us it it was in a place called Bethsaida. And, sorry, earlier I said Bethsaida, I meant Bethesda. It's not the same place. The the pool was at Bethesda. Bethsaida, this one is. And it says, he asked Philip, where could we buy bread? It's just an in-passing detail. In Luke's Gospel, Jesus is calling his disciples to him, and it tells us in passing that Philip came from Bethsaida. Just details in passing, but they match. Why ask Philip where to get bread? Oh, because Luke tells us Philip came from that town. Details in passing. You don't get that sort of thing right if you're making it up a hundred years later. Awkward details. The New Testament contains awkward details. Who were the first witnesses to the resurrection? Oh, they were women. Why is that an awkward detail? Because women weren't then regarded as reliable witnesses. In fact, they weren't even legally valid witnesses. You wouldn't include a detail like that if you were making it up at any time, let alone a hundred years later. Oh, we could go on with many more. I hope that's enough for you. The evidence is the Bible is reliable. Why am I telling you this? Because it tells you what we have written here is true. And that tells you Jesus did die and rise again. And that tells you, you must respond. You must sit up and take notice and do something about it. Jesus died and rose again. So secondly, what that tells us about Jesus. What does that tell us about Jesus? It tells us that he is stronger than death. It tells us he could give up his life and then take it back again. And that tells us he's not an ordinary man. It's not as if people back then were unfamiliar with death or people back then were just superstitious idiots who thought, oh yes, of course people can come back from the dead. It isn't that the Bible is saying this is normal or expected or easily believable. The Bible is saying this is not normal. And so it is saying Jesus is not normal. Jesus is not an ordinary person. Well, who could he be? Exactly who he said he was. The Son of God. The one who made the world and then became human. And once you take that in, who he is... The shock is not that he rose from the dead. The shock is that he died in the first place. How could the one who made all this become a physical body and die and be stone cold in a tomb? That is the shock. Not his resurrection, but his death. So why did Jesus die? Well, we read at the beginning, didn't we? Isaiah 53, an ancient prophecy that hundreds of years before Jesus said someone would come who would die for others. 
Someone would come to take other people's sins. Someone would come to take the punishment others deserve. Someone would come to take death in our place. That's someone, of course, being Jesus. Now you might say, death, punishment, sin? We're not that bad, are we? For me to need God to become man and die... For me, no, I don't hurt others. I just mind my own business. I wonder if you're thinking that now. Well, let's have a think about that. Let's imagine a town. Let's call it Edmundborough. And it's called Edmundborough because it's under the rule of a king, Edmund. And the king keeps the town safe and he keeps the enemies away and he supplies it with food and he's paid for its roads and he's arranged its water supply. And he makes laws for the town. And occasionally he sends messengers to the town he rules and the messengers tell what the king has done for them and remind the people what the king's laws are that they should obey. Now the people of this town are generally peaceful. They're not fighting each other. It's not rife with crime. But they pay no attention to the king. They don't acknowledge he rules. They show no thankfulness to him. They don't bother to find out his laws. And when the king's messengers turn up, the people find them rather annoying. Leave us alone. What have we done wrong? We're just minding our own business. I wonder if you're starting to see a parallel. I wonder if that is you with God. He's given you life. He's given you food. He's given you water to drink. He's given you air. He keeps you alive. He's put you in his world that he rules. And do you pay any attention to him? Do you acknowledge he rules? Are you thankful to him? Do you bother finding out his laws? And then do you obey them? Have you discovered what he thinks of you and how he says you should live? You see, I'm just minding my own business. We might think that means we're all right, but it's actually just the problem. When has God's business been on your mind? And this Bible, this same Bible, whose reliability we've heard about says, God will punish all such treating him as if he were not God. He isn't just some softy who says, oh, well, never mind, what could I expect? I haven't done a good enough job of making myself known. No. He will punish all such treating him as if he were not God. And that is exactly why Jesus died. He came to take the punishment so we could be forgiven. He came under that curse so we could be free of it. He came so that all of our sin could be placed on him. He came so our ignoring God could be counted to him, put on his record. He came so our living as if life is about us could be counted to him, nailed to his cross. He came so our unthankfulness to God would be placed on him and he'd bear its punishment. So our pride would be counted to him. So our hate would be counted to him. So our sexual sin would be counted to him. 
so our greed would be counted to him. So every single way you've you've disobeyed God would be placed on him and he would bear the punishment for it all. All that is wrong with us was counted to him. So he could take the punishment and we could be free of it. We've heard Jesus died and rose again. We've heard what that tells you about Jesus. Now, thirdly, let's hear what that results in. What's the result of all that? Now, the death and the resurrection of Jesus has so many results for us here and now. It means we can know God's fatherly care. We can have a purpose in life. A a moral guide that makes sense and actually works. God's people as your family. Enjoying worshipping God and knowing him. So many, many results here and now. But our verse tells us one different result. Let's look at the verse again. One different result. We believe that Jesus died and rose again. And so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. He's talking about what happens when we die. So many results for this life here and now, but here is one result for when we die. Now there's a famous saying, I wonder if you've heard it, there are two things in life you can't avoid. Do you know the two things in life it said you can't avoid? I don't know who said this saying. Death and taxes, two things you can't avoid. Well I have a friend who was a banker in Switzerland and then in Wall Street and then in the city of London. He had a glittering career in banking and now he's had to stop work because he has cancer and it can't be cured. Unless something else gets him first, he will die of this cancer. And he says, well actually, as a banker in Switzerland to very rich people, he discovered you can avoid taxes. You might not like to hear it, but it's true. People who are rich enough can avoid taxes and do. He's discovered that. I suppose he's helped them do it, I don't know. That's a bit naughty. But he said, as someone who's got cancer, he's discovered you can't avoid death. And all of his money, and I suspect, well I know he's earned an awful lot, he's going to leave it all. It's looking rather empty to him now. He's discovered he could avoid taxes, but he can't avoid death. Now we might laugh a little at that, but have you faced up to it? One day you will die. And you'll lose everything. One day you'll have to leave all the things you've worked for, dreamed of, achieved. But Jesus died and rose again, so we don't need to lose everything. So death becomes what? What does the verse say? Death becomes falling asleep. What's falling asleep like? Oh, it's nice, isn't it? It's peaceful. Maybe the uh, mothers of little babies say, I wish it was. (laughs) But for most of us, it's nice and peaceful, isn't it? Your body, at least partly, shuts down for the night. But you haven't stopped existing. No, you just sort of partly shut down. It's not permanent. You're going to wake up again. And in the morning, it's as if your mind and body are back together again, (coughs) falling asleep. Jesus died and rose so that death could be like that, like falling asleep. 
He overcame the physical process of death so that we could overcome the physical process of death. It was reversed for him so it could be reversed for us. For him, death wasn't the end so that for us, death wouldn't be the end. His body and soul were reunited so our body and soul could be reunited. Falling asleep. The verse actually tells us a little more. Have a look at it again. We believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. It's talking about when Jesus comes back. There's a day coming when he's going to return. And he'll remake his people's bodies. And he'll reunite them with their souls. And he'll remake this world. And he'll reunite it with God as God's home along with his people. And then the physical and the spiritual will be in perfect unity. Do you see that emphasis? Things being brought back together. Body and soul brought back together in unity. Physical and spiritual brought back together in unity. This world and God brought back together in unity. Do you see, the Christian message is no little message. It's no pathetic turn up to church, try better and life might go well. It's a big plan. From God, through his Son, to remake this world, to do away with suffering and sin, to remake millions of people, to live together with him forever. A big plan. And you can have a part in it. How? Well, look at the last two words in the verse. Just the last two little words in the verse. In him. We believe that Jesus died and rose again. And so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. Those last two little words are really key to this. You see, it doesn't say Jesus will do this for those who have been good enough. Or those who have tried hard enough. Or those who have been to church and understood the Bible well enough. It says... God will do this for those who are in him. That is, in Jesus. Not God might do it if you're in him and good enough. Not God could do this if you would just add your bit to what Jesus has done. But God will do this for those who are in him. The emphasis is... The verse is so simple. This is why I've chosen to preach on it, because it's so simple, it makes it clear. Jesus did it. Now, do you belong to him? That's what it is, isn't it? Jesus did it. Now, do you belong to him? Are you one of his people? Is your confidence in him? Well, then, the rest of the verse will follow for you. It's saying, don't trust in what you've done. That doesn't come into this verse at all. Don't trust in what you intend to do. That doesn't get a mention here. Trust in what he's done. He died and rose again. And therefore, God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. Because Jesus died and rose for his people, these results will definitely happen for his people. And so your response should be surely this... Jesus, make me one of your people. Jesus, I need you. 
Make me one of your people. That's a simple prayer. You could pray that right now, couldn't you? Jesus, I need you. Make me one of your people. If you believe this message, if you see this need, if you see your need, it's not just a general vague need, it's your personal need. And you pray that prayer, I promise he'll answer you. So let's pray now.